Hello, and welcome to River Writers, a production of the Writers Guild of Astoria, a 501c3 nonprofit supporting writers and the literary arts in Astoria and the Lower Columbia region. I'm your host, Marianne Monson. Aired the second Monday of each month at 9 a.m., River Writers provides a chance to peek behind the curtain at the craft of writing, what motivates writers to do the work they do, and what have they learned through their creative process. I'm excited to have with me in the studio today Pacific Northwest author Randall Sullivan, who recently released the book Graveyard of the Pacific. Randall has been nominated for three Pulitzer Prizes over the course of his career. He spent decades of his life working as a journalist for Rolling Stone. He also served as a war correspondent in Bosnia. Welcome to the studio, Randall. Thanks, Marianne. It's great to have you here. I'm so, I've been so excited to talk with you today. Uh, we had the opportunity to have you at the Astoria Library for an event not so long ago. Lovely event, thank you. Absolutely. And it's just a pleasure to sit down and, and talk with you again in a little bit different format. So, um, you know, in a, in a slightly different focus, the, the River Writers is more about the craft of writing. And so looking at your process, I think, is what is, uh, is really appealing and interesting to readers, as well as um, talking, of course, about the Graveyard of the Pacific, too. Okay. So, but I'd love to start w by asking what got you started with writing? Like, how did you first get interested and, and what brought you to nonfiction? Well, that's a story, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always loved reading and I love stories as a boy and then I think at some point when it began to dawn on me that I probably wasn't going to be the quarterback for the 49ers I started thinking about what else I might do in life and I just happened to have a ninth grade teacher Pat Everett who had grown up with and was very close to Ken Kesey and she had actually uh, typed the manuscript for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and wow. introduced me to this character this book and encouraged me that I had some talent as a writer uh, and and then the very next year as a sophomore I had uh, Mr. Wasugi who was uh, Japanese American and you know, even though he you know he sort of disdained my continuing fascination with football and girls he did think that I had talent as a writer too and he really encouraged me so I had that those two events consecutively and uh really thought I was going to do that. And when I was at the University of Oregon, uh, I discovered a mentor, uh, the head of the creative writing program, Ralph Salisbury, f f who has inspired many, or did uh, inspire many Oregon authors over the years. And he was very encouraging. And uh, so anyway, and then I decided I, I really wanted to get to New York City somehow. So I applied for a fellowship at Columbia University and to my amazement won it. Mm. So I was carried off to New York in my early 20s. Uh, and I was writing uh, fiction and poetry and what was getting published, unlike my classmates. Mm. Uh, uh, but it looked like what I was headed to after I got my MFA was uh, sort of some sort of entry-level college teaching position. and. The idea of being on campus for the rest of my life, after having already been on campus, really struck me as uninspiring. And so I walked over to the most famous school of journalism on the planet, Columbia's, mm -hmm. 
talk the uh, secretary of the dean into letting me audit a class which happened and the teacher of that class happened to be the metropolitan editor of what was then the biggest newspaper in the country uh, the New York Daily News uh, and he hired me out of the class so wow. I mean it was really I didn't even know I was being hired he invited me down to, to uh, you know visit the newspaper see what a big city newspaper looked like and so I borrowed my friend's wedding suit because I didn't have one and uh, went down to be shown around, and, and I thought, you know, they were t I was taken in to meet the city editor, the managing editor. I thought, wow, I'm really getting the grand tour. And then finally, <laughs> the editorial director came in and called me into his office, and I'd been in there five seconds when he said, okay, well, we can start you on Monday at a salary that staggered me. <laughs> so at that time, so there it was, suddenly I had a job wow. as a journalist, and... Uh, and things just moved kind of quickly after that. I got offered a job. After, I wasn't that happy at the Daily News, was, unless you're a really compact writer and a New Yorker at heart. It's, it's not really the place for you. So I was offered a job in Los Angeles where I got a column. At 29, I had the only front page column on a metropolitan paper in the country. Amazing. And the day my first column was published, I got a call from Rolling Stone asking me to go work to work for them. And so it was just this sort of startling series of happenstance that led to uh, going to work for Rolling Stone when I was 30. That's incredible. That's an amazing story of motivation and looking for opportunities and then taking them when they arrive and, and, and doors and opening for doors opening luck i mean luck comes yeah. into the whole yeah thing. there's a lot of serendipity i would say more than luck but you know i mean you were there doing the work asking for those true, breaks true. so that, yeah. ver that very first piece i wrote for the <laughs> the columbia class I stayed up till three in the morning and it paid off. You know, he so read great. he read it aloud to the class and said, This is by far the best student work I've ever seen and Wow. You know, wow. So, you, you you were earning it. That's that's great. I love that story. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, and then your journalism career ended up definitely not confining you to campuses. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Uh, you know, being in LA you get at the same time I was I was writing the column. I mean, I don't know how I did it, and you know, and, and you know, I made a lot of mistakes in my personal life because the frenetic nature of my work life. But I was writing the column for the paper, working for Rolling Stone, and I was also just starting to make movie and television deals. Uh -huh. So I was going, wow, you know, insanely, and yeah. really caught up in myself. <laughs> and, <laughs> Which and, often is a piece of people who are very driven and, and successful you know and in the life and anyway yeah you know but you know this yearning to somehow get back to Oregon and particularly Oregon coast was always there in me mm -hmm. so oh, interesting uh, even though it was kind of dormant for several decades right before you yeah I mean I make it yeah I would have never you know no but every time that I would get a break I would find myself wanting to, to come back to Oregon instead of all the other places I could go and usually if I got back to Oregon I would go to the coast and yeah uh, and people would say what what what, do, what always makes you want to get back to the coast and I'd think about it and I'd say well it's the air wow that I love the air here that's so, so random you said I don't think I've ever heard anyone when I get off the plane in Portland it's like I'm so happy to have that first breath of air the Oregon coast air is better than Portland's but still Oregon air is beautiful it is 
when there's not smoke and wildfires. Especially, especially <laughs> if you've just come from L.A. Yes, especially after L.A. I, I grew up in Chicago, so <laughs> understand, yeah, compared to a city. But it's kind of like soft and... Uh, the air here is it's, it's the most highly oxygenated air. is that what it is yeah, it's interesting the most it's like scientific it's not yeah. just us being poets over here okay well that's cool so i am interested because you said during your undergrad you were writing or and in your mfa you were writing fiction mm -hmm. and poetry mm -hmm. and getting some of it published yes. but then your career like so then you became a journalist so you were writing almost exclusively nonfiction at that point I was I sort of channeled the fictive impulse into screenplays I got hired you know to write a screenplay oh okay at, you know pretty young and it, you know, yeah I mean, I'd never written one yeah and but these people offered me a hundred thousand dollars to write a to learn how to write a screenplay wow so, that's pretty great so while I was in uh in the early mornings before I had to go to a trial I was covering, mm -hmm. uh, I would work on the screenplay and, wow. and actually had a, a career in Hollywood if I wanted it. And uh, I really blew it in a single meeting, which but was it was revelatory of my own uh, thinking. I uh, at one of the biggest agencies uh, in LA at that time was called Leading Artists great mm -hmm. fabulous offices on Cannon Drive in Beverly Hills so the head of the agency called me in for a meeting and I thought I was going in just to uh, you know for a talk the two of us about you know I'd written this one screenplay mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I walk in and I'm led into a conference room where the entire agency is sitting around and he's at one end of the table and I'm at the other mm -hmm. and they're all staring at me and then he says we have just one question for you do you want to direct and I started talking about how I really saw myself first and foremost as an author and I wanted to write books and I was literally tattooing loser on my forehead. <laughs> if they ask you if you want to direct, you say yes. <laughs> yeah, that would be the first law of Hollywood, but I didn't. Wow, that's amazing. Another really amazing backstory. Okay, so you start writing journalism, you start writing screenplays, you blow your directing interview, um, yeah. <laughs> and then you, um, so you end up publishing, because this is, Graveyard of your Pacific, the Pacific is your sixth book? Uh, eighth, actually. Eighth book, okay. And then, so the previous are all nonfiction, though, right? Um. Well, I wrote a collection of short stories when I was young, and then I wrote a, a teen novel during the pandemic because oh. I was cooped up okay. and bored. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's what we all did during the pandemic was write YA novel. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Did, has that been published? No, that one's going to be published. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think my publisher thinks it's not a good idea oh. until, until I'm, you know, dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be your posthumous YA yeah. novel from the pandemic. Okay, so most of those books have been nonfiction. Yes, correct. And on all a of the best pretty notes. wide... Yeah, the three that were nominated for Pulitzer Prizes are all nonfiction. Correct. And on a pretty wide array of topics, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and people, When people always ask, you know, you know, what I write about is if there should be some consistency. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to admit there isn't any. Yeah. And usually it's because I want to do something really different than I just did. Right. You know, I, I mean, so. Uh, You're bored. Repetition bores me. Yeah. 
Obviously, your life has not been boring. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to fit this into a 30-minute interview, actually. Another way of saying it's been messy. <laughs> uh, interesting, messy. It's a fine line between those two things. So, yeah, I mean, when you look back at your previous nonfiction books, what do you think is the connecting thread? Well, that's a tough one. Um well, I mean, a, a wish, a desire to make art out of journalism. I mean, I was, I, I think part of it is that I came of age in a time when uh, that was sort of the ascending mm -hmm. uh, f focus in, in literature, and especially in American literature. Uh, uh, you know, Norman Mailer, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, and any number of others, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, uh, and, and Rolling Stone gave me extraordinary freedom uh, mm. uh, when I was young and uh, let me write pieces that were way artier than they'd allow these days. Yeah. And it would sort of, you know, blur the lines, so to speak. And, right. and, uh, uh, and I took full advantage of that freedom and it, it worked out for me mm -hmm. very well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, where journalism has ended up going is a totally different story. But you were really there for a, kind of the golden age of journalism in some ways, I would say. Golden age of publishing, a lot of people would say, too. I mean, yes. you know, the, the, there was certainly more money. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, more encouragement, I'd say, right. for, for experimentation. Yeah, yeah, more leeway. And, yeah, I think still the journalism industry is kind of trying to find its footing in a digital age in terms of how to be profitable, but that's a different story. <laughs> so, um, for those of you who are just joining us, this is Marianne Monson for KMUN's River Writers, sponsored by the Writers Guild of Astoria. And this morning I am speaking with author Randall Sullivan, who just released a new book called The Graveyard of the Pacific. So let's move towards that book um i read it and loved it and just really really found so much in there that i related to i think it's it's a wonderful book for anyone to read but anyone who has connections to this region particularly will very much enjoy it you know because it's so steeped in this landscape that we're so familiar with but sometimes don't take the time to really remember or learn about the incredible depth of history as you do with places where you live, right? You tend to not see them the way that a tourist or a, um, or someone who's coming in, like trying to research and learn about a place. will see it. Yeah. I, I think that's true. I, I mean, I think a lot of people don't appreciate, I mean, there's certainly many that do, but don't appreciate that in Astoria, you're living, you know, right next to the most significant, magnificent, uh, frightening feature in the entire, you know, Northwest and maybe even the Western part of the country in the Columbia Bar. I mean, it's a singular uh, feature of nature. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. Let's hear a brief passage from the book, if we may. All right. Do that. Your listeners should know I didn't get to prepare for this, so I'm... <laughs> 
I'm picking. But you have read the book before. <laughs> I have read the book before, including in your presence. Um, well, I, I'll read a couple of maybe three paragraphs from uh, uh, very early in the book because they uh, involve a conversation with someone who was at the time Astoria's mayor. <clears throat> when I'd first spoken to my friend Ray about the right day for crossing the Columbia Bar back in April, I'd been quoting Bruce Jones, who, along with occupying the office of mayor of Astoria, Oregon, served as deputy director of the Columbia River Maritime Museum. In the email in which he introduced himself and suggested we meet at the museum, Mayor Jones had attached a photograph of the astounding turbulence a person might encounter at a place where one of the world's largest, most powerful, and fast-moving watercourses spills into the Pacific Ocean. Actually, this intersection of river and sea is more of a slam than a spill like two giant hammers pounding into each other, as the head of the Columbia River Bar Pilots Association described it to the New York Times back in 1988. I studied the image Jones had sent, lashing towers of white water swamping the massive wall of mounded stones that formed the Columbia Bar's north jetty, and felt a contraction run through me from throat to sphincter. He had taken the photograph in my previous life, Jones explained in his email, while flying the Bar Pilots Association's Seahawk helicopter, his primary job to drop pilots on inbound ships five miles outside the entrance to the bar. The photograph, taken during a November squall, doesn't do justice to the violence of the sea and the wind he saw that day, Jones had written. These words would have seemed even more ominous if I'd known when I read them that what an understated man Bruce, Bruce Jones is. There was one word in his brief email that gave me comfort, though, and it was November. While I realized it was impossible to ever be entirely certain about the weather on the Columbia Bar, because conditions were known to deteriorate dramatically in a span of minutes during any season of the year, I knew Ray and I weren't going to be attempting any crossing of the bar in either water or air as cold as November's. Thank you. That was pretty great. Appreciate that. Um, and, and the passage that you read, I think gives our listeners a flavor of the style of it, the way that you really brought in the voices of local maritime experts. You know, you mentioned Bruce Jones in that passage. Um, and also, I think, gives us a flavor for the way that you weave the history of the Columbia Bar and the shipwrecks that have occurred there over many centuries with your own story of crossing the bar with your friend. Yes, that was that was the intention, and it, and it was. Uh, I mean, I had complex motives for it, but uh, you know, I'm convinced it worked. But and many people agree, but some don't. <laughs> well, I'm on the team that thinks that it worked. <laughs> I I really love moving back and forth between those more modes. You know, I think. It Well, it ties the future to this long past, but it also gives us a real sense of the depth and complexity of the, of the past that is in that place. Yeah, and the past that's in that place and the past that was in uh, my friend Ray's and my lives. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, when I've done readings or appearances, almost always the first question people ask is, what, why would you, what would make you... Uh, want to cross the Columbia Bar in a kayak. And in a lot of ways, this book's an attempt to answer that question. You know, that is one question that didn't occur to me. I'm also a pretty adventurous person. So to me, it's like, 
why not? It's there. Yeah. <laughs> so well. that part, that wasn't a question I thought of asking. But I am, I, I really love the title, The Graveyard of the Pacific. And as you read, it becomes just a perfect metaphor for sounding the depths of the past, for exhuming some of the shipwrecks and the crises that have occurred there that have also occurred in your own life right like so delving into all of that and I'm curious was that metaphor something that developed over time in your mind or was that or did you identify that connection right away I didn't identify it right away right away graveyard of the pacific was a working title Mm -hmm. at the beginning um I mean I uh but what I discovered was that uh, absolutely no one at uh, my publishers in New York had ever heard of the Columbia Bar, let alone the Graveyard of the Pacific. So it was a totally original term to them, and they loved it. They loved it wow. as a title immediately. And then I realized just what you said. Well, it really is the perfect title because this mm-hmm. is about everything that's buried down there and uh, trying to bring it back up to the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which I think you did wonderfully. Um, Also, at some point, I think you began to realize that the story was really a generational one. It was much bigger than your own experience or just Ray's experience. Um, In the article that we did previously together for The Daily Historian, you said many baby boomers were raised by men who were violent with them. They were shaped by that violence but chose not to continue it. They broke the cycle and learned how to separate the toxic from the masculine. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Well, that kind of became a theme of, you know, maybe the theme ultimately of the book. As it went along, I didn't approach it without it. Mm-hmm. I, I'd always known I wanted to write something about Ray and me and our relationship and this bond we'd formed around having survived a lot of physical abuse. Uh, from our fathers as boys and on all the physical abuse that uh, young men of our generation endured and the struggle we had as fathers to make sure we didn't pass that on to our children. Uh, so that was I mean, that part of it. I mean, which is really, you know, my relationship with Ray is, is probably one of the three narratives of the book that are woven in. There's, I mean, the, the publisher calls it a combination of uh, history adventure and memoir and that's probably a fair description yeah i agree but at what point did you start to realize that the story was more like of a societal generational one really not till fairly far in i mean the first draft i delivered for the book had a lot about ray's background and mine was just sort of sketched in Mm -hmm. you know is you know as sort of give a sense of our connection and my editor uh, said you just need to write more about yourself and your father and honestly Ray's story is interesting but yours and your father's is even more interesting and mm-hmm. we, you know we, so I you know once I accepted that and went back to it I realized that one of you know this thing Ray and I shared of of uh, of being part of it of a generation that where that was widely endured yeah. among young men. Not that it doesn't still happen to young men today, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's much more infrequent. Well, it's not tolerated by society as a whole as it was then, 
yeah, it was yeah. it was just matter of fact. Part of in those growing days. up, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to describe to someone younger how different it was, how right. what the you know the lack of the absence of any you know public prohibition on on these things. You know? Yeah. So I mean, my kids don't understand it. And neither do his. Yeah. You know, I mean, my daughter, only from reading the book. You know, she'd said, well, I had no idea. And, and of course she said, and I remember Grandpa Sully is kind of this sweet old, because she only met him when he was, you know, yeah, you know, you know, approaching 80. Mm-hmm. And he mellowed by then and never, you know, she never, uh, and I, and that's good. I, yeah. I'm glad she didn't. But, uh, uh, so, but I just thought about how many of us have dealt with that and mostly silently. I mean, what's been interesting to me is that the people who've praised the book most abundantly have been women. I did not expect that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are saying, you know, because, you know, the men of our generation are so tight-lipped about this. They can't talk about it. There's a shame and a a denial. Yeah. And I think I told you that when my editor at the Daily Age first asked me if I wanted to write the story about your book, on first looking at it, I was surprised because kind of my beat is I write women's history, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. So I think it was the historical element. But to me, like, at first, I felt like maybe I was going to have a difficult time relating to the story or, um, you know, have it gravitating towards it, like feeling an affinity towards it. And the further I got into it, the more I realized that my father had come through those same experiences that shaped you and that so much that motivated me to write women's history and to be the feminist that I've become is a direct result of that same cyclical violence that was also present in my family. And I think it motivates, it shows up in different ways, but, um, you know, one manifestation of it is, is feminism for me. And one manifestation I think for you was that, trying to figure out how to separate that masculinity from the toxic, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, what Ray and I share, yeah. aside from that background, is kind of a, a deep commitment to, you know, masculinity and a yeah. feeling that, you know, we're not going to yeah. sacrifice any of that or forfeit any of that you right. know, or, or shave, you know, really even shave it, you mm-hmm. know, but it's recognizing that it is not, it doesn't have to be inherently vicious you know, yeah. or violent or, or yeah. uh, that that's a th- that's something that you know it's an overlay mm-hmm. that comes out of other things you know it basically was passed down I mean right. my, my father was beaten probably more savagely than he beat me and oh probably as his, was mine yeah it's intergenerational there's no question about that yeah, yeah. so and and the realization that you know my generation of men the baby boom generation of men to a significant degree, stopped a cycle that had gone on for generation after generation after generation. And we haven't been getting credit for it. It was sort of a feeling of, you know, it was something that was really a paradigm shift Mm -hmm. that hasn't been very acknowledged. And now with all the complaints from millennials and Gen Y and Gen Z about baby boomers having hogged, you know, America's wealth, which we were totally unaware of anyway, (laughs) you know, at the time. But, but, uh, uh, it occurred to me that, well, that's true. But in, in my son's case, for example, you know, he, he heard, you know, I love you from his father virtually every day of his life. And I yeah. never heard it even once. And mm-hmm. it's something to understand about, you know, 
the difference and and you know that the advantages and disadvantages cut both ways there's just always a trade-off you know in every life in every generation and any comparison point you can make there's it's easy to gravitate towards the positives that you wish you had right but you forget about some of the negatives so i appreciate that i mean i think um for me and for other women part of the reason i would guess you have other women gravitate towards the book is it's sort of like being able to have a conversation with my father about what happened to him but I can't have that conversation with him. So for me, it was healing. To, it's just so important to talk about it, you know? And so I appreciate that you have. Yeah, thank um, you. But tell us really briefly, where can people find the Graveyard of the Pacific? Well, at most bookstores. Well, thank you so much, Randall, for sitting down to chat. Well, thank you, Marianne. The Vistoria is a 501c3 nonprofit organization promoting the literary arts and serving writers in the lower Columbia region. You can learn more and become a member by visiting thewritersguild.org. Until next time, I'm Marianne Monson for River Writers.